0: Disc 22 At a more humdrum level, executive housing, with pebbled driveways, brick-facing and dormer windows, was growing across farmland and by rivers with no thought of floodplain constraints. Parts of the country far from London, such as the English South West and Yorkshire, enjoyed a ripple of wealth that pushed their house prices to unheard-of levels. From Leith to Gateshead, Belfast to Cardiff Bay, once derelict shorefront areas were transformed. Supermarkets, exercising huge market power, brought cheap meat and factory-made meals into almost everyone's budgets. The new global air freight market and refrigerated lorries moving freely across a Europe shorn of internal barriers carried out-of-season fruit and vegetables, fish from the Pacific, exotic foods of all kinds, to superstores everywhere. Hardly anyone was out of reach of a Tesco, a Morrison's, Sainsbury's or Asda. By the mid-2000s, the four supermarket giants owned more than 1,500 superstores. This provoked a new political row about their commercial influence, but it also spread consumption of goods that had once been luxuries. Under Thatcher, millions had begun drinking wine. Under Blair, they began drinking drinkable wine. Their children had to borrow to study, but were more likely to go to college or university and to travel the world on a gap year a holiday from ordinariness which had once meant working occasionally abroad, but which by now might mean air-hopping across South America or to the beaches of Thailand. Materially, for the majority of people, this was a golden age, which perhaps explains why the real anger about earlier pensions decisions and stealth taxes failed to translate into anti-Labour voting in successive general elections. Not everyone, of course, was invited to the party. New Labour's general pitch was to the well-doing middle, but Gordon Brown, from the first, made much of its anti-poverty agenda. Labour, in particular, emphasised child poverty because, since the launch of the Child Poverty Action Group, it had become a particularly emotive problem. Labour policies took a million children out of relative poverty between 1997 and 2004, though numbers rose again later. Brown's emphasis was also on the working poor and the virtue of work. So his major innovations were the National Minimum Wage, the New Deal for the Young Unemployed, and the Working Families Tax Credit, as well as tax credits aimed at children. There was also a Minimum Income Guarantee, and later a Pension Credit, for worse-off pensioners. The Minimum Wage was first set at £3.60 an hour, and rising year by year. It stood at £5.35 an hour in 2006. Because the figures were low, the minimum wage did not destroy the two million jobs or produce the higher inflation which Conservatives and others claimed it would. Employment grew, and inflation stayed low. It even appeared to have cut red tape, since the old wages councils had to inspect businesses more frequently than the new inland revenue minimum wage inspections. By the middle 2000s, the minimum wage covered two million people, the majority of them women. And because it was uprated slightly faster than inflation – the wages of the poor rose faster. The situation may change, particularly if unemployment worsens, but it appeared to have been an almost unqualified success, enough for the Conservative Party, which had so strongly opposed it, to embrace it under Michael Howard before the 2005 election. The New Deal was funded by a windfall tax on privatised utility companies. By 2000, Blair said it had helped a quarter of a million young people back to work, and it was being claimed as a major factor in lower unemployment as late as 2005. It was clearly less of a factor than the huge increase in the size of the state. In the Blair years, state employment grew by 700,000, funded by record amounts taken in tax. And the cost of goading, coaxing and educating people into jobs was very high. The National Audit Office, looking back at its effect in the first Parliament, reckon the number of under-25-year-olds helped into real jobs could be as low as 25000 at a cost per person of £8,000. All those new jobs which had to be created to help people into jobs came at a price. A second initiative was targeted at the youngest of all, the babies and young children of the most deprived families. Sure Start was meant to bring mothers together in family centres across Britain, 3,500 were planned for 2010, ten years after the scheme was launched, and helped them to be more effective parents. A scheme in the United States had shown great success, and Sure Start was another initiative backed in its essence by the Conservatives, though Blair himself appeared to be having second thoughts, as the most deprived families declined to turn up. He believed in sticks as well as carrots. Abroad, the government's anti-poverty agenda concentrated on Africa. In 2004, Blair initiated the Commission for Africa, which worked to persuade the world's richest countries to back a wide plan for economic, political and social reform, supported by debt relief. By then, it was estimated more than 50,000 people were dying every day from famine or bad water in Africa, and the continent's AIDS epidemic was wiping out much of a generation. In 2005, Brown, struggling to persuade the United States to back his plans for an international finance facility, a global piggy bank, agreed to raise Britain's aid contribution to 0.7% of GDP. Washington declined to follow suit. Enormous strength was added to the campaign by Make Poverty History, one of the two biggest examples of street politics in the Blair Age. Here was extra-parliamentary action which showed people's readiness to engage with politics as unusual, a residual idealism. There is a tradition in Britain of moral protest and practical action for famine abroad. Oxfam had started as the Oxford Committee for Famine Relief in 1942, campaigning to persuade the wartime government to lift its blockade on German-occupied Greece, where the Nazis were allowing people to starve as they diverted food to their army in North Africa. Churchill took the view that the starvation was the fault of the occupying power and the blockade should stay. The argument was strikingly similar to those made about sanctions imposed on Saddam Hussein's Iraq in the Major and Blair years. What made the later movement different was the fusion of celebrity, music and television to raise unheard-of sums. It began with the Irish rock star Bob Geldof and Midge Yore of the band Ultravox, who were shocked by news coverage of the 1984 Ethiopian famine by the BBC's Michael Burke. They formed a 30-strong supergroup to make a fundraising Christmas single, Do They Know It's Christmas?, It raised £65 million, and Geldof managed to persuade Margaret Thatcher to waive VAT for the famine victims. This success was followed by Live Aid, a linked global concert held in London and Philadelphia in 1985. It was watched by an estimated 1.5 billion people in 160 countries, making it by far the biggest world television event to that point. Geldof continued to campaign on Africa, joining the Commission for Africa. Having sworn he would never try to repeat Live Aid, Geldof did so in 2005 with a host of rock stars, including U2 and the briefly reformed Pink Floyd, breaking more records for global audience numbers. This time, though, the focus was on lobbying the richest countries, meeting as the G8 under British chairmanship at Glen Eagles in Scotland. On the 2nd of July 2005, some 225,000 people marched in Edinburgh calling for debt cancellation to help Africa's poorest countries. A week later, a £28.8 billion aid deal and a debt cancellation program for 18 countries, plus new guarantees to fund anti-HIV drugs, were indeed agreed at Glen Eagles. Because parts of the rich world remained hostile to opening up trade to Africa, essential to helping the continent recover, some campaigners were disappointed and the announcement was greeted with cynicism by the anti-globalization movement, which was also a feature of these years. Geldof said, however, that never before have so many people forced a change of policy onto a global agenda, and his fellow campaigner, Bono, of U2, claimed the deal would save the lives of 600,000 Africans, mostly children. The legacy of Live 8 and the Commission for Africa will continue to be debated for years, but it was a unique alliance between civil organizations, churches, rock musicians, actors, writers, and politicians. Both Blair and Gordon Brown were consciously trying to use the hundreds of thousands of marchers and the glamour of the rock stars to nudge other world leaders towards agreement, and they were at least partially successful. It showed what their partnership could do. Poverty is hard to define, easy to smell. In a country like Britain, it is mostly relative. Though there are a few thousand people living rough, or who genuinely do not have enough to keep them decently alive, and many more pensioners frightened of how they will pay for heating, the greater number of poor are those left behind the general material improvement in life. This is measured by income compared to the average, and by this yardstick, in 1997 there were three to four million children living in households of relative poverty, triple the number in 1979. This does not mean they were physically worse off than the children of the late 70s, since the country generally became much richer. But human happiness relates to how we see ourselves relative to those around us, so it was certainly real. Under their new leader, David Cameron, the Conservatives declared that they too believed in the concept of relative poverty, as described by a left-of-centre commentator, Polly Toynbee. And a world of work remained below the minimum wage in private homes, where migrant servants were exploited, and in other crannies. Some 336,000 jobs remained on poverty pay rates. Nevertheless, the city firm UBS believes redistribution of wealth, a phrase New Labour did not like to use in case it frightened middle-class voters, had been stronger in Britain than other major industrialised countries. Despite the growth of the super-rich, overall equality slightly increased in the Blair years. One factor was the return to means-testing of benefits, particularly for pensioners, and through the Working Families Tax Credit, which in 2003 was divided into a child tax credit and a working tax credit. This was a personal U-turn by Brown, who, in opposition, had opposed means-testing. As Chancellor, he concluded that if he was to direct scarce money at the people in real poverty, he had little choice. More and more pensioners were means-tested, eventually some 66% of them, provoking a nationwide revolt and persuading the government to back down and promise an eventual return to a link between state pension rates and average earnings. The other drawback of means-testing was that a huge bureaucracy then had to track people's earnings and try to establish just what they should get. Billions were overpaid. As people getting tax credits rather than old-style benefits did better, and earned a little more, they found themselves facing demands to hand back money they had already spent. Many thousands of civil servants were hurriedly sent to try to deal with a tidal wave of complaint, and the system became extremely expensive to administer. It was also hugely vulnerable to fraud, with gangs taking over people's identities, 13,000 civil servants alone, and exploiting a culture of overpayment. In the new labour years, as under John Major, a sickly tide of euphemism rose ever higher, depositing its oily linguistic scurf on every available surface. Passengers became customers. Indeed, everybody became customers. Bin men became refuse operatives. People with mental disabilities became differently abled. And the poor became the socially excluded. There were controversial drives to oblige more disabled, and sometimes shirking, people back into work. The socially excluded were confronted by a wide range of initiatives designed to make them, in essence, more middle class. In theory, Labour was non-judgmental or liberal about behaviour. In practice, responding to the darkest areas of deprivation, an almost Victorian moralism began to reassert itself. Advice on diet, weight loss and alcohol consumption followed earlier government campaigns on AIDS and drugs. Parenting classes were much trumpeted. And for the minority who made life hellish for their neighbours on housing estates or in the streets, Labour introduced a word which became one of its particular gifts to the language of the age, as essential as dot-com or texting, the ASBO. The Anti-Social Behaviour Order, first introduced in 1998, was an updated system of injunctions for what earlier generations called hooligans. These had to be applied for by the police or local council and granted by magistrates. To break the curfew or restriction, which could be highly specific, became a criminal offence. Asbos could be given for swearing at people, harassing passers-by, vandalism, making too much noise, graffiti, organising raves, fly-posting, taking drugs or sniffing blue, joyriding, either offering yourself as a prostitute or curb-crawling in your car to find a prostitute, hitting people, drinking in designated public places, almost anything, in fact, that was annoying or frightening. More bizarre-sounding ones included giving an asbo to an entire part of Skegness to allow police arrests of troublemakers there, a thirteen-year-old girl being banned from using the word grass, and an eighty-seven-year-old man being ordered not to make sarcastic remarks to neighbours and their visitors. In one case, a woman who kept trying to commit suicide was given an asbo to prevent her jumping into rivers or canals. Though almost every story about an unlikely sounding ASBO as reported in newspapers turned out to have a reason behind it, ASBO spotting became a minor national sport, and there were fears that for the tougher children they became a badge of honour. In their early years they were much mocked by Liberal Democrat and Conservative MPs for being ineffective and rarely used by local authorities, as well as being criticised strongly by civil libertarians. Since breaking an ASBO could result in a prison sentence, it meant extending the threat of prison to crimes that before had not warranted it. Yet the public, when polled, strongly supported ASBOs, and as they were refined and strengthened, they were gradually used more frequently, becoming almost routine. Like the minimum wage, bank independence, and some of the anti-poverty initiatives, they seemed to be a part of New Labour Britain that would stick. At the time of writing, 7,500 or so had been given out in England and Wales. Scotland followed in 2004 with its version. Was this part of a wider authoritarian and surveillance agenda changing life in the country? The War on Privacy At an educated guess, the British are currently being observed and recorded by 4.2 million closed-circuit television, CCTV, cameras. Professor Clive Norris of Sheffield University, who did the educated guessing, has pointed out, that's more than anywhere else in the world, with the possible exception of China. It's one for every 14 citizens. When they first appeared in the early 90s, gazing beadily down from a few high security buildings, these remotely staring cameras were pointed out as novelties. They are now in almost every sizeable store, looking down at key points in most big streets, in railway and underground stations, buses, housing estates and even from the fronts of private homes. Londoners are said to be picked up on CCTV cameras on average 300 times a day. Their cars are filmed and tracked by the cameras set up for the capital's congestion charge. The Home Office has spent three quarters of its crime prevention budget on CCTV cameras and the face recognition and smart technology that goes with them. The number of mobile phones is now equivalent to the number of people in Britain. With global satellite positioning chips, they can show where their users are, and the same of course goes for GPS systems in cars. By 2007, Britons were losing the art of map reading. There are also more than 6000 speed cameras on British roads. Britain's Information Commissioner Richard Thomas warned that the country was becoming a surveillance society. He thought future developments could include microchip implants to identify and track people, facial recognition cameras fitted into lamp posts, and even unmanned surveillance aircraft over Britain's towns. Thomas suggested this could lead to discrimination and harassment. As ever more information is collected, shared and used, it intrudes into our private space and leads to decisions which directly influence people's lives. Certainly, if being watched makes us good and safe, the British are now the goodest, safest people in the history of the world. Who watches all the CCTV coverage? Court cases often demonstrated that either there was no film kept or that to spot a face took many police officers many weeks. Though this can increasingly be done electronically, other kinds of surveillance were being done in person. A new force of council tax inspectors were given powers to enter any home in England and take photographs of any room, including bedrooms and bathrooms, on pain of a £1,000 fine for refusal or obstruction. This was to assess improvements, including patios, conservatories and double glazing, for revaluation purposes, as soon as the government gave the go-ahead for such a revaluation, which was planned to include extra charges for people living in agreeable areas or who could park their cars outside their homes. It was reported in early 2006 that discussions had taken place with the civil servant in charge of the surveillance programme about selling on the information his men had gleaned to insurance and mortgage companies. Paul Sanderson, director of modernization for the tax inspectors, said he thought privacy was an old-fashioned concept and called for all the details, including photographs, to be shown online. If anything could be more intimate than the insides of everyone's homes, it is their DNA, with its clues about heredity, vulnerability to disease and much else. In 2003, the law was changed to allow the police to take and store the DNA of anyone arrested for any imprisonable offence, whether or not they were later convicted. Previously, the police had had to destroy the samples of anyone found innocent, or whose case was dropped. Three years later, by which time 3.6 million samples were being held, Tony Blair said the database should be extended to everybody. The number on the database should be the maximum number you can get and there was no problem with the general public providing their DNA as part of the wider fight against crime. By then, the public also knew they would be expected to give biometric data, iris recognition, and perhaps eventually DNA, for new compulsory identity cards, due to be introduced from 2008, when people applied for new passports. David Blunkett had promoted the idea of compulsory ID cards, despite a hostile reaction from his predecessor, Jack Straw, the Chancellor, Gordon Brown, and initial caution from the Prime Minister. But he won his fight in government, essentially because he convinced Blair that technology was becoming safe and that ID cards would be popular with the majority of voters. These cards would carry a range of personal information, forming yet another new database, the National Identity Register. The issue provoked rebellions in Parliament before and after the 2005 election, but seemed to have been finally resolved by a 31-vote majority in the Commons in February 2006. The new cards would cost citizens at least £93 each, though Ministers did not initially make it an offence to fail to carry one at all times. What were they for? To combat fraud and crime, to make life easier for government, and for individuals to make it harder to lose money through identity fraud. Yet, compulsory ID cards would probably not have passed through Parliament had it not been for the terrorist threat. 7 7 On the 7th of July 2005, at rush hour, four young Muslim men from West Yorkshire and Buckinghamshire, Hazib Hussain, Mohammed Sadiq Khan, Jermaine Lindsay and Shazad Tamir murdered 52 people and injured 770 more by blowing themselves up on London underground trains and one London bus. The report into the worst such attack in Britain later concluded that they were not part of an al-Qaeda cell, though two had visited Pakistan camps, and that the rucksack bombs had been constructed for a few hundred pounds. Despite government insistence that the war in Iraq had not made Britain more of a terrorist target, the Home Office investigation asserted that part of the four terrorists' motivation was British foreign policy. They had picked up the information they needed for the attack from the Internet. It was a particularly ghastly one because of the terrifying and bloody conditions below the streets of London in tube tunnels, and it vividly reminded the country that it was as much a target as the United States or Spain. Indeed, the intimate relationship between Britain and Pakistan, with constant and heavy traffic between them, provoked fears that the British would prove uniquely vulnerable. Blair heard of the attack at the most poignant time, just following London's great success in winning the bid to host the 2012 Olympic Games. He rushed back from Glen Eagles in Scotland, where the G8 summit was discussing the ambitious new aid plan for Africa and differences between the United States and the rest over global warming. The London bombings are unlikely to have been stopped by more CCTV coverage, for there was plenty of that, nor by ID cards, for the killers were British citizens, nor by follow-the-money anti-terror legislation, for little money was involved. Only even better intelligence might have helped. The Security Service, as well as the Secret Intelligence Service, MI5 and MI6, as they are still more familiarly known, were already in receipt of huge increases in their budgets as they struggled to track down other murderous cells. Richard Reed, the shoe-bomber from Bromley, who tried to destroy a flight from Paris to Miami in 2001, was another example of the threat from homegrown extremists, visiting radical mosques from Brixton to Yorkshire, and there were many more examples of plots uncovered in these years, though by no means every suspect finally made it to court. In August 2005, police arrested suspects in Birmingham, High Wycombe and Walthamstow, East London, believing there was a plan to blow up as many as ten passenger aircraft over the Atlantic. The threat was all too real, widespread and hard to grip. After many years of allowing dissident clerics and activists from the Middle East asylum in London, Britain had more than its share of inflammatory and dangerous extremists, who admired al-Qaeda and preached violent jihad. Once September 11th had changed the climate, new laws were introduced to allow the detention without trial of foreigners suspected of being involved in supporting or fomenting terrorism. They could not be deported because human rights legislation forbade sending back anyone to countries where they might face torture. Seventeen were picked up and kept at Belmarsh High Security Prison. But in December 2004, the House of Lords ruled that these detentions were discriminatory and disproportionate and therefore illegal. Five weeks later the Home Secretary Charles Clark hit back with control orders to limit the movement of men he could not prosecute or deport. They would also be used against home-grown terror suspects. A month later, in February 2005, sixty Labour MPs revolted against these powers too, and the government only narrowly survived the vote. Ten Belmarsh men were put under these new restraints, but the battle was far from over. In April 2006, a judge ruled that such control orders were an affront to justice because they gave the Home Secretary, a politician, too much power and two months later said curfews of 18 hours a day on six Iraqis were a deprivation of liberty and also illegal. The new Home Secretary, John Reed, lost his appeal and reluctantly had to loosen the orders. In other cases, meanwhile, two men under control orders vanished. New Labour Britain found itself in a struggle between its old laws and liberties and a new, borderless, dangerous world. As we have seen, the Britain of the forties was a prying and regulation-heavy country, emerging from the extraordinary conditions of a fight for national survival. From the fifties to the end of the eighties, the Cold War had grown a shadowy security state, with the vetting of BBC employees. MI5 surveillance of political radicals, a secret network of bunkers and tunnels, and the suspension of British jurisdiction over those small parts of the country taken by the United States forces. Yet none of this seriously challenged hallowed principles such as habeas corpus, free speech, a presumption of innocence, asylum, the right of British citizens to travel freely in their country without identifying papers, and the sanctity of homes in which the law abiding lived. In the War on Terror, Much of this was suddenly in jeopardy. New forms of eavesdropping, new compulsions, new political powers seemed to the government the least they needed to deal with a new, sinuous threat which ministers said could last for another thirty years. They were sure that most British people agreed, and that the judiciary, media, campaigners, and elected politicians who protested were a hand wringingly liberal, too fastidious minority. Tony Blair, John Reed and Jack Straw were particularly emphatic about this and on the numbers were probably right. As Gordon Brown eyed the Premiership, his rhetoric was similarly tough. Against recent historical tradition, it was left to the Conservatives, as well as the Liberal Democrats, to mount the barriers in defence of civil liberties. The Waning This book is written under the shadow of a new politics of global warming, when the British were being urged to be environmentally friendly. This author's contribution, which may save a Nordic wood or small grove of some beauty, is to resist giving a detailed account of the decade-long feud between Tony Blair and Gordon Brown. It would, apart from anything else, require at least another volume the same size as this one. But it cannot be ignored because it has affected the country itself. The feud went on from New Labour's first days in power until the last months when the Prime Minister's fingertips, white with effort, were slipping from office. Sometimes there were oases of tranquility and good humour for months at a time. Yet the stories of door-slamming tantrums, four-lettered exchanges, make-ups, go-betweens, public snubs, and cherished policies for Britain's future being tugged back and forth like disintegrating soft toys were repeated in Whitehall private offices, pubs, and newspaper columns almost weekly. Occasionally it seemed as if Blair was on the point of sacking his Chancellor. Brown was variously reported by Number 10 to have psychological flaws, to be a control freak, a wrecker, a traditionalist playing to the gallery, and disloyal whenever the Prime Minister was in real trouble. Blair, retorted the Brownites, was a vain second-rater, obsessed with money and glamour, who had betrayed the Chancellor over their original deal. In the first term, Brown was defending his huge remit as Chancellor, and Blair was trying to come to terms with how brutally he was being kept out of large policy areas, how little he knew of forthcoming budgets, and how weak was his ability to push Britain towards the Euro. Brown felt the second election victory in 2001 was mostly his own work, based on the strong economy. In the second term that followed it, he began pushing for a date when Blair would leave office. Blair, turning to the war on terror and Iraq, failed to concentrate enough on domestic policy. Even so, he became ever more determined to hang on until he got the reforms he wanted. A gap seemed to open between Blair's enthusiasm for market-mimicking ideas to reform health and schools and Brown's for delivering better lives to the working poor. As we have seen, Brown was also keen on bringing private capital into public services, but there was a difference in emphasis which both men played up. Best when we are at our boldest, said Blair. Best when we are Labour, retorted Brown. Over Iraq, Foundation hospitals, and student top-up fees, Blair thought Brown came close to leaving him at the mercy of lethal backbench revolts, disappearing off into the rhododendron bushes just when he was most needed. Brown did give his support and rally his people to help Blair out of various self-excavated holes, but the Scotsman with the ladder tended to arrive as darkness was falling. After six years in office, he felt Blair was squandering the party's reputation on gimmicks and a too enthusiastic backing for Bush. He thought Blair had lied to him about when he would step down. John Prescott intervened first during November 2003, so worried that their feud would bring down the government that he knocked their heads together, metaphorically despite his reputation, over a dinner of shepherd's pie, telling them they would destroy the Labour Party. This produced a truce, but during 2004 things worsened rapidly again. Labour was badly hurt in local elections. With Iraq still smouldering, Labour MPs began to panic about what would happen at the next election. A mix of personal and political frustration brought Blair to another low ebb. For years he and Brown had dealt with each other through a range of intermediaries, meeting on neutral ground and carrying white flags. Punctuating these regular arm's-length contacts, At roughly the chilly level one might expect between a Prime Minister and leader of the opposition, Blair and Brown had hotter private meetings. But by now they were barely speaking, and Blair was deeply depressed about his legacy, as well as private troubles. In July 2004, four Cabinet Ministers were so worried he was about to resign that they jointly pleaded with him to stay on. In the autumn, Prescott was involved in further talks about whether there could be a peaceful transition. On one occasion he met Brown at an oyster bar by Loch Fyne in Scotland. All the tables were taken. So, for an hour and a half, the two men talked in a black government limousine in the car park, surrounded by armed guards, as if they were two businessmen of Sicilian extraction, planning the carve-up of criminal territories. Prescott later talked of the tectonic plates moving, and admitted that ministers were positioning themselves for the end of the Blair years. Brown was preparing himself for his looming premiership, briefing himself on foreign affairs, reaching out to groups well outside the Treasury's normal remit. Transition teams were prepared. Surely, finally, even this soap opera was ending. It was not. Blair gathered together his formidable internal resources and quietly determined that he would not go after all. Immediately after Labour's conference at Brighton, he returned to Downing Street to make a triple announcement. He confirmed he was buying a house, an expensive, ugly, hard-to-let house, in Connaught Square, which he and Cherie would eventually use for their retirement. After a heart scare the previous year, he was going into hospital for treatment using a thin wire to correct irregular heartbeat problems. This condition, which Blair was at pains to downplay, was known only to a few close friends. Like the house purchase, it tended to focus attention on his political mortality. Hence the third announcement, a bolt from the blue. He intended to fight the forthcoming election, and, if elected, serve a full term. But, as he told the author, I do not want to serve a fourth term. I do not think the British people would want a Prime Minister to serve so long. But I think it's sensible to make plain my intention now. It was an unprecedented thing to say, and caught Brown on the hop. He was on his way to a meeting in Washington. In the short term, it effectively killed off speculation that Blair was about to resign. To that extent, it was clever. It may also have helped Labour in the 2005 election, since Blair was promising his critics he would not, like Margaret Thatcher, try to go on and on. It certainly felt like a slap in the face for Brown. Just a day earlier in Brighton, the two of them had had a long, tense talk about the future, in which Blair warned him that his supporters were destabilising the government and urged him to work with him. In response to a newspaper report that he was intending to serve a full third term, Blair told Brown this was wrong. He said nothing about his heart problem. When he discovered that Blair was planning a complete third term, Brown was reported to be livid. Demoted from his old role running the forthcoming election campaign, he rejected an offer to chair Labour's press conferences during it. There is nothing that you could ever say to me now that I could ever believe, he was said to have told the Prime Minister. But life is full of surprises. Blair discovered that pre-announcing his political mortality, however protracted, was a draining and sapping mistake, the worst purely tactical decision of his premiership. It provoked a stream of further questions. Yes, but when, exactly? How many years is a full term? How long does your successor get in office before a further election? If you are going, what validity do your long-term plans for the country really have? And most pertinently, do you still want Gordon Brown to take over? These questions pursued him, loud, irritating, distracting heckles. His authority was first subtly, then dramatically weakened. Always there were moments of hope. After Bush declared the war over on the 1st of May 2003, a search began for pro-Western Iraqis to whom some authority could be given. Eventually, Saddam Hussein was found hiding in a hole and taken prisoner. Some 80 other countries pledged 18 billion pounds for reconstruction while US and British companies worked hard on repairing infrastructure. In the South, where British forces were in control, they were quick to take off their helmets, patrolling in berets and trying to build good relations with local people. To start with, this worked well. Across Iraq, huge amounts of money, dollars in shrink-wrapped blocks, were sent to be dispersed locally by hastily recruited Western viceroys. The following year saw the naming of Ayad Alawi, an affable Shiite, as interim Prime Minister of Iraq. That June, the United States formally handed over sovereignty to his government and a few days later, an Iraqi court began the trial of Saddam Hussein and eventually sentenced him to death. A national assembly was chosen and a date for elections was set. In January 2005, Iraqis had their first multi-party election for 50 years, choosing a transitional government. Later, a Kurd, Jalal Talabani, was sworn in as Iraq's interim president. In October, Iraqis voted for a new constitution, establishing an Islamic republic. At the end of the year, millions took part in the full election, which by January 2006 resulted in victory going to a Shia-dominated party, though without an overall majority. These were the drumbeats of democracy and renewal, much what Blair and Bush had hoped would happen. What had not been predicted by them was the appalling dark side of Iraq after the conflict which completely overshadowed the Reconstruction and the creation of democratic structures. A long, numbing tale of insurrection followed by religious feud, slaughters, car and suicide bombings, the killing of civilians in heavy-handed military responses, the beheading of Western hostages, the revelation of brutality by U.S. guards at the notorious Abu Ghraib prison, a full-scale assault on the rebel town of Fallujah, a thousand dead in a panicked stampede, every day brought more murders, more fighting, less hope. By 2004, child mortality had doubled compared to 1990. There was a shortage of doctors and teachers. According to the World Bank, about a quarter of Iraqi children no longer attended school. Universities reported that they were being infiltrated by Muslim militias. Professors fled, and female students were being persecuted for failing to wear the hijab. According to the United Nations, some 750,000 people had fled their homes since the war, adding to the 800,000 refugees of the Saddam era, while an estimated 1.6 million Iraqis had moved across the borders. By 2006, electricity supply was running at below the pre-war level, and only half of Iraqi homes had safe supplies of water. Baghdad was on the edge of full-scale war, her hospitals filthy and dangerous, while militias roamed the streets. The possible breakup of the country was being openly talked about. In spring 2007, the International Red Cross described the suffering of Iraqi civilians as unbearable and unacceptable. According to polls, most British voters wanted the troops home, whatever further mayhem was caused. It was the same story in the United States, where most voters, who had been sold the idea that the Iraq war followed unnaturally from 9-11, now believed it was a mistake. Bush stopped talking about staying the course. A report for a Ministry of Defence think tank described Iraq as a recruiting sergeant for Islamic extremism around the world. This reflected the view of the Washington Organisation, which brings together America's 19 intelligence agencies, who firmly concluded that Iraq had increased the global risk of terrorism. In December 2006, the US-Iraq Study Group presented Bush with a bleak assessment of the mayhem and a series of unpalatable options designed to slowly bring America's soldiers home while negotiating with her traditional enemies in an attempt to bring some kind of stability to the country. So, by almost any standard that can be applied, three years after the Iraq war, it looked like a catastrophe. The country was experiencing civil war. The lives of Iraqis were now even more at risk and mostly more unpleasant than under Saddam's dreadful regime. Terrorism had been encouraged, not defeated. Countries regarded by London and Washington as regional menaces, Syria and Iran, were stronger and more confident, not less. With 120 British military dead in Iraq, most people saw the war as the worst single mistake by a British government in recent times. Some believe that had Blair refused to give British support for the war, it would not have happened. The mood inside the White House after September the 11th makes this unlikely. Even so, having committed Britain Blair could not stand aside from the consequences. The kaleidoscope was shaken all right. The pieces were in flux. A Crowd of New People One result of the long Iraqi agony was the arrival of many Iraqi asylum seekers in Britain, Kurds, Shiites and Sunnis. This was little commented on because they were only a small part of a large migration into the country, which changed it during the Blair years. It was a multilingual, many-religioned migration, which included Poles, Zimbabweans, Somalis, Nigerians, Russians and Afghans, Australians, white South Africans and Americans, as well as sizable French and German inflows. In 2005, according to the Office for National Statistics, immigrants were arriving to live in Britain at the rate of 1,500 a day, and since Tony Blair had arrived in power, more than 1.3 million people had come. By the mid-2000s, English was no longer the first language of half the primary school children in London, and the capital boasted 350 different separate language groups. The poorer new migrant groups were almost entirely unrepresented in politics, but radically changed the sights, sounds and scents of urban Britain. The veiled women of the Muslim world, or its more traditionalist and Arab quarters, became common sights even on the streets of many market towns, from Scotland to Kent. Polish tradesmen and factory workers were followed by shops stocking up with Polish food and selling Polish magazines, and even by Polish road signs. Chinese villagers were involved in a tragedy when 19 were caught by the tide while cockle-picking at Morecambe Bay and drowned. But many more were working in grim conditions for rural gangmasters, or, as the then Home Secretary David Blunkett put it, as slaves. Russian voices began to be as common on the London underground as Irish ones. Through most of its history, Britain had been abnormally open to the world, mostly imposing herself elsewhere. Now she found herself a world island in a new way. Throughout the 20th century, Britain's foreign policy had been concerned to control the impact of outside forces on these busy, crowded islands. In its first half, she had tried this by attempting to keep her imperial possessions while subduing her greatest rival, Germany. In its second half, she had worked with America against the Soviet Union to preserve a system of democracy and the free market, hoping to avoid nuclear annihilation, determined to avoid European federalism. She was not a successful manufacturing country, but became a popular place to do financial business. Compared to similar countries, she was unusually warlike, spending more on defence and fighting more, too. Britain had always gone out into the world. Now, increasingly, the world came to her, poor and migrant, rich and corporate, the people of Eastern Europe and the manufacturers of China. As in Victorian times, she was on the edge of newness, at the global bow wave of change, but now it was change experienced near at hand. Immigration had been a constant of British life. What was new was the scale and variety. Earlier modern migrations had, as we have seen, provoked a racialist backlash, riots, the rise of the National Front and a series of new laws. These later migrations were controversial in different ways. The early arrivals from the Caribbean or India were people who looked different but spoke the same language and in many cases had had a similar education to native British people. Many of the later migrants looked similar to the white British but shared no linguistic or imperial history. There were other differences. Young, educated Polish or Czech people had come to Britain to earn money before going home again to acquire good homes, marry and have children in their rapidly growing countries. The economic growth of the early 2000s was fueled by the influx of energetic and talented people, often denuding their own countries of skills, making their way in Britain as quickly as the East African Asians had before. But there are always two sides to such changes. Criminal gangs of Albanians, Kosovars and Turks appeared as novel and threatening as Jamaican criminality had 30 years earlier. The social service bill for the new migrants was a serious burden to local authorities. Towns such as Slough protested to national government about the extra cost in housing, education and other services. Above everything else, there was the sheer scale of the new migrations and the inability of the machinery of government to regulate what was happening. The Home Office's Immigration and Nationality Department, IND, seemed unable to prevent illegal migrants entering Britain, to spot those abusing the asylum system in order to settle here, or to apprehend and deport people. An illegal and sometimes lethal trade in people smuggling made it particularly hard. Even after airlines were made responsible for the status of those they carried, large articulated lorries filled with human beings who had paid over their life savings to be taken to Britain rumbled through the Channel Tunnel. A Red Cross camp at Sangat, near its French entrance, was blamed by Britain for exacerbating the problem. By the end of two thousand two, when Blunkett finally managed to get a deal with the French to close it, an estimated sixty seven thousand had passed through Sangat into Britain. Many African, Asian and Balkan migrants, believing the British immigration and benefit system to be easier than those of other EU countries, simply moved across the continent and waited patiently for their journey into the UK. Thermal imaging devices, increased border staff and unwelcoming asylum centres were all deployed. Unknown numbers of migrants died through thirst, asphyxiation or cold. Some were murdered en route. Successive Home Secretaries Jack Straw, David Blunkett, Charles Clark and John Reed tried to grapple with the trade, introducing legislation which was criticised by Civil Liberties campaigners and challenged in the courts. None was much applauded for their efforts and the last of them eventually confessed that he believed his department was not fit for purpose. He hived off the struggling IND as a separate agency, and promised to clear a backlog of around 280,000 failed asylum seekers still in the country within five years. Uniformed border security staff were promised, and the historic Home Office was to be split up. Meanwhile, many straightforwardly illegal immigrants had bypassed the asylum system entirely. In July 2005, the Home Office produced its own estimate of what the illegal population of the UK had been four years earlier, reckoning it between 310,000 and 570,000 souls, or between 0.5 and 1% of the total population. A year later, unofficial estimates pushed the possible total higher, to 800,000. The truth was, with boxes of cardboard files still being uncovered and no national recording system, nobody had a clue. Even the Bank of England complained, asking how it could set interest rates without knowing roughly how many people were working in the country. Official figures showed the number applying for asylum falling, perhaps as former Yugoslavia returned to relative peace. Controversially, thousands were being sent back to Iraq. But there were always new, desperate groups, in the Middle East or war-torn and hungry Africa. Projections about the impact of global warming suggested there always would be. The arrival of workers from the ten countries which joined the EU in 2004 was a different issue, though it involved an influx of roughly the same size. When the European Union expanded, Britain decided that, unlike France or Germany, she would not try to delay opening the country to migrant workers. Ministers suggested that the likely number arriving would be around 26,000 over the first two years. This was wildly wrong. In 2006, a Home Office Minister, Tony McNulty, announced that since 2004, when the European Union expanded, 427,000 people from Poland and seven other new EU nations had applied to work in Britain. If the self-employed were included, he added, the real figure would be nearer 600,000. There were at least 36,000 spouses and children who had arrived too, and 27,000 child benefit applications had been received. These were very large numbers indeed. The Ugandan-Asian migration, which caused such a storm in 1971, had, for instance, amounted to some 28,000 people. It was hardly surprising that Britain now faced an acute housing shortage and that government officials began scouring the south of England looking for new places where councils would be ordered to let the developers start building. By the government's own 2006 figures, annual net migration for the previous year was 185,000 and had averaged 166,000 over the previous seven years. This compares to the 50,000 net inflow which Enoch Powell had criticised in his notorious 1968 speech as mad, literally mad. Projections based on many different assumptions suggested the UK population would grow by more than 7 million by 2031. Of that, 80% would be due to immigration. The organisation Migration Watch UK, set up by a former diplomat to campaign for less immigration, said this was equivalent to requiring the building of two new towns the size of Cambridge each year, or five new Birminghams over the quarter century. But was there a mood of unnecessary hysteria? As has been noted, many of the Eastern European migrants, like those from Australia, France or the United States, could be expected to return home eventually. Immigration was partly offset by the outward flow of around 60,000 British people moving abroad each year, mainly to Australia, the United States, France and Spain. By the winter of 2006-7, to one policy institute, the IPPR, reckoned there were 5.5 million British people living permanently overseas, nearly one in ten of us, or more than the population of Scotland, and another half million living there for some of the year. Aside from the obvious destinations, the Middle East and Asia were seeing rising colonies of expatriate British. Who were they? A worrying proportion seemed to be graduates. Britain is believed to lose one in six graduates to emigration. Many were retired or better off people looking for a life of sunlit ease, just as many immigrants to Britain were young, ambitious, and keen to work. Government ministers tended to emphasize the benign economic effects of immigration. Their critics looked around and asked where all the extra people would go and what spare road space, hospital beds or schools they would find to use. Blair's Final Years From Labour's arrival in power in 1997 right through to the 2005 election, Blair and his ministers had never been seriously worried about the Conservatives. After the heavy defeat in 2001, Haig had instantly resigned. The Conservatives then rejected the man who had seemed the obvious alternative, Michael Portillo. The son of a Spanish Republican refugee, and as a boy the advertising face of Ribena fruit juice, he had suffered the crippling fate of being regularly touted as a future leader from the mid-eighties, Mrs. Thatcher's chosen one. But Portillo had feuded with Haig. More importantly, he was on a personal journey to a more metropolitan view of the world, had admitted homosexual affairs in his youth, and would not condescend to pretend to his party that he was anything other than socially liberal. He launched his campaign in an achingly trendy London restaurant, so the party, in its first full democratic leadership vote, instead chose Ian Duncan Smith. In IDS, a former soldier, businessman, and in Parliament, a Eurosceptic rebel, MP for Norman Tebbett's old seat of Chingford, traditionalist Conservatives thought they had found someone who truly represented their core beliefs. Indeed they had, but they underestimated Duncan Smith's deep interest in helping the disadvantaged and, sadly, had overestimated his political skill. A thoroughly decent man, he was outclassed so badly as a speaker and on television that the Tories took fright. A growing rebellion persuaded him to resign as leader in December 2003. A demoralised party did something rare. It chose its next leader without the customary vicious fight, returning the former cabinet minister Michael Howard to the colours. Howard had been controversial as Home Secretary, but was part of the Tories' Cambridge Mafia, and brought rivals from the Liberal wing of the party back inside his leadership tent. He began brilliantly as leader, binding wounds and restoring morale. He was the first Tory leader to really worry Brown and Blair, a dangerous opponent. Like Haig, he performed well in the Commons calling on the Prime Minister to resign over Iraq and making much of a series of Home Office scandals and failures. In 2005, his election focused on better public services and immigration. Conservative posters asked the question, Are you thinking what we're thinking? Though they gained substantial numbers of seats and votes, a majority in England, the country's overall answer was, No, not really. Michael Howard resigned and was replaced by the bright young Old Etonian David Cameron. Taking the Tories in a green and liberal direction, he won high poll ratings and looked set, by 2007, to be the Conservative leader best placed to oust a sitting Labour government since Margaret Thatcher had the job 30 years earlier. The Liberal Democrats might have hoped that the hugely unpopular Iraq war and the Blair government's growing reputation for illiberal and fiddly statism would allow the third party to break through. Under Paddy Ashdown, there had been a long and fruitless courtship with Labour, ultimately made impossible to consummate by Blair's large majorities. Then the experience of the Scottish parliamentary elections turned Blair against voting reform, a key Lib Dem demand. His old mentor, Roy Jenkins, wryly gave him up as a constitutional reformer of any kind, and that relationship cooled. Ashdown's successor, Charles Kennedy, had been the youngest MP when first elected for the Western Isles as an SDP member. He was popular with the party and the media, He took the Lib Dems away from any proximity to new Labour and campaigned, after some encouragement, against the Iraq War. Under him, the third party became a place where disaffected leftish Britons gathered, a Pacific haven from Blair's bellicose certainties and the Home Secretary David Blunkett's enthusiasm for locking up asylum seekers. In the 2001 election, the Liberal Democrats won 52 seats, and in 2005, 62, a record performance. But after the heady optimism of the early eighties, they seemed to be back playing a long game. Charles Kennedy had a serious alcohol problem which could make him fuzzy and unconvincing, and which, though his aides lied about it for years, eventually led to his resignation as party leader. He was replaced by Sir Mingus Campbell, a Scottish lawyer and former Olympic runner who was older but safer. The 2005 election campaign ended with Labour's majority cut from 167 in the previous contest to just 67. For most previous Prime Ministers, a majority of that size would have been considered handsome. Heath, Wilson, Callaghan or Major would have killed for it, and it was 24 more than Margaret Thatcher had enjoyed in her first strife-ridden and tumultuous administration. But by the standards of new Labour's record, the loss was a serious rebuke. The voters were noticing. But what? Blair thought they were noticing the habit of disloyalty among his MPs. Many of them thought they were noticing Blair. Certainly with so many disaffected former ministers and left-wing dissidents on the Labour benches, it meant he would have an even harder time getting his own way. Then there was the further problem of his time-limited remaining tenure and the slow withdrawal of his personal authority. Brown had not been given his accustomed role in election planning, but was far more involved than Blair had first intended in the 2005 fight. With their best false hearty smiles in place, and much criticised for making wild claims about the cuts planned by their Tory opponents, they had won their third mandate standing beside one another, if not hand in hand. As soon as the election was over, Blair turned his mind to staying on rather longer than the Chancellor had hoped. The latter stages of Blair's time as Prime Minister were overshadowed by the bloody aftermath of the Iraq War and by renewed fighting in Afghanistan. After more bad local elections in 2006, he sacked his Home Secretary, Charles Clark, who publicly protested. He demoted his Foreign Secretary, Jack Straw, and he stripped John Prescott, who had been hit by a scandal, of his departmental responsibilities. The embarrassing police inquiry into whether businessmen had been recommended for peerages as a result of offering loans to the Labour Party drew closer to Downing Street. Shortly before Christmas 2006, Tony Blair became the first serving Prime Minister to be interviewed by the police as part of a criminal investigation. He was questioned in Downing Street for two hours by Detective Chief Inspector Graham McNulty and a colleague. This occurred on the same day as the official police report into the death of Diana was finally published and a controversial announcement was made about rural post offices. Downing Street denied there was any attempt to bury bad news, but from the outside it looked like one new Labour tradition that should have been ditched. But would it bring forward an earlier departure? After a rocky summer in 2006, there had been an organised round of junior ministerial resignations and demands for Blair to quit, assumed by Number 10 and most of the media to have been organised by supporters of Gordon Brown. Despite calling an open letter on the subject disloyal, discourteous, and wrong, on the 7th of December the Prime Minister promised that the coming party conference would be his last, breaking under duress his earlier promise to serve a full term. Labour's conference, held unusually in Manchester, saw one of Blair's most eloquent speeches ever, a defiant farewell to the party which no longer wanted him, and which responded to him with largely hypocritical adulation. It did not look as if the parting would be particularly sweet on either side. His wife was heard referring to Brown's earlier conference speech with the single word, liar. Soon, Blairites were attempting to persuade the young cabinet minister David Miliband to challenge Brown in a leadership contest. He was being bashful, but it was evidence of how deeply in trouble Labour now was. The polls showed Brown trailing the new Conservative leader David Cameron. Whatever this was, It was not glad, confident morning again. Britain after Blair This history has told the story of the defeat of politics by shopping. The political visions of Attlee and Churchill in his romantic, nostalgic mood were overthrown by the consumer boom of the fifties. People generally wanted colour, variety and new tastes, not austere socialist egalitarianism, or thigh-slapping new Elizabethan patriotism, though a large minority was drawn to each of these. In the Wilson and Heath years, politicians promised a newly scientific, planned future, all straight lines and patriotism, drawn up in Whitehall, with everyone sitting down together, backing Britain. There, Britain collapsed, and Margaret Thatcher's revolution shoveled away the rubble. Her boot sale of state enterprise, defeat of the unions, and her abandonment of politicians' controls over money led to a new boom. The old state retreated, and the consumer society advanced. Far from moralizing the British with the Victorian values of frugality, saving, orderliness, and continence, as she had hoped, Thatcher gave many of us the license and credit to behave like Regency rakes on a spree. The country went shopping again, as it had in the 50s and 60s, and would again in the 90s and beyond. The new great powers in the land were organisations that had barely been noticed before the war. In 1924, an East End barrow boy called Jack Cohen had used part of his surname and the initials of a tea supplier to market his own brand tea under the title Tesco. Five years later, he opened his first shop, then the country's first all-purpose food warehouse, and in 1956, when Tony Blair was three, a self-service store. Tesco leaped ahead. In the 80s, Cohen's daughter, Dame Shirley Porter, became leader of Westminster Council and, after a highly controversial Homes for Votes scandal, left the country. By the time Blair left office, Tesco was the country's leading retailer, with 1,780 stores, sales of more than £37 billion and profits of over £2 billion. It was gaining one pound in every three the British spent on groceries, and there was talk of Britain becoming a Tescopoly. Asda, set up by Yorkshire Farmers in 1965, and now owned by Walmart, the American behemoth, and the world's biggest company, came second to Tesco, but was still serving more than 13 million people a week. Sainsbury's, which had originated in a Victorian dairy shop and had launched the first self-service supermarket in 1950, had sales of £17 billion and more than 750 stores. Such companies dominated farmers and other suppliers, exercised great power in planning disputes, and were becoming increasingly controversial. Meanwhile, to enjoy the consumer economy, the British were borrowing. The average adult had credit card, finance deal, and unsecured personal loans amounting to more than £4,500. Apart from generous planning laws, the shopping boom required the great car economy lauded by Margaret Thatcher, which was now restrained only by rising petrol prices and congestion. London had deployed its own congestion charge, and a national debate had begun about road pricing. Car use was huge by historic standards. At the beginning of the 60s, when supermarkets first took off, there were 9 million vehicles on the roads. By the mid-2000s, there were 30 million. It was not all shopping, of course. Commuting by car had become mundane, and the number of journeys to school by car had doubled in ten years. By the standards of the forties or fifties, the British now led strikingly privatised lives. They mostly shunned public transport, and were far less likely to shop shoulder to shoulder with neighbours, using shopkeepers they knew by name. With television, digital or analogue, and the computer boom, entertainment was much likelier to remain in the home. The British were afloat on a tide of cheap imported goods, easy credit and new labour, both skilled and unskilled. House prices had by now nearly tripled in the Blair years, but politicians, still taxing vigorously, still struggling to deliver popular and efficient public services, were not given any credit for that. Politics shriveled, as an activity, as a source of status, as a way of ordering life that was respected or trusted. Lady Thatcher found no truly effective way to run the public services. Nor did her successors, John Major and Tony Blair. The great middling layer of public life, the independent-minded managers of schools, hospitals and towns who had real freedom to manage, and the self-confident local politicians who could make waves, had gone. By most measures, overall crime had fallen from the late nineties, at the cost of overcrowded prisons. But violent crime was as much feared as ever, and as present on the streets of the main cities. All this had a direct effect on people's hopes and fears about the country. One commentator from a conservative-minded think tank explained the exodus of 1,000 people a day to other countries. People are emigrating because of a sense of hopelessness. Nothing is ever done about the big problems like education, health, crime. There is a growing sense that politicians will never deal with the problems. That was only one voice, and others had different views, but it reminds us why the policy problems discussed at length earlier are so critical to the country's notion of its future. Yet, at the end of this story, the need for true politics seems to have returned. Towards the end of his time in office, Tony Blair unveiled a report by an economist, Sir Nicholas Stern, which he described as more important than any report to government during the new Labour years more important, therefore, than the debate over Iraq or pensions, peace in Ireland or the future of Britain's health service. Few questioned this bold assertion, for the report was about climate change. We have already seen how radically new waves of migration were changing Britain, but they were as nothing compared to what a new climate might do. An overwhelming preponderance of scientists believed not simply that the climate was changing, there was no room left for doubt about that, but that the change was man-made and potentially catastrophic. The polar ice was melting, weather patterns were disrupted around the globe, species were disappearing, and yet, as China and India advanced, the gases causing these changes continued to pour upwards. Blair had tried to persuade his partner in Iraq, George Bush, to alter in some way his hostility to carbon limits, but to no avail. Compared to the agreements he had won on Africa, Blair's effort on climate change had been a failure. American self-interest overrode what to others seemed proper and fair, and there was no bigger cultural challenge to Britain's sense of proportion and fairness than the one thrown down by militant Islam. After 9-11 and the London bombings, there were plenty of angry, narrow-minded young Muslim men running amok, either literally or in their heads. Their views, and the veiled women of Arab tradition, provoked English politicians to ask whether their communities wanted to fully integrate. Britain did not have as high a proportion of Muslims as France, but large parts of the English Midlands and the South had long established and third-generation urban villages of hundreds of thousands of Muslim people. Muslims felt they were being watched in a new way, and they were perhaps right to feel a little uneasy. In the old industrial towns of the Pennines, and in stretches of west London near Heathrow, There were such strong concentrations of incomers that the word ghetto was being used by ministers and civil servants. White working-class people had long been moving quietly to other areas, Essex, Hertfordshire, the towns of coastal Sussex, even Spain. They were a minority, if polling was any guide. Only a quarter of Britons said they would prefer to live in white-only areas. Yet multiculturalism, if it was defined as more than simple live-and-let-live, was being questioned. How much should New Britons integrate, and how much was the retention of traditions a matter of their human rights? Speaking in December 2006, Blair cited forced marriages, the importation of Sharia law, and the ban on women entering certain mosques as being on the wrong side of the line. In the same speech, he used new, harder language. After the London bombings, for the first time in a generation, there is an unease, an anxiety, Even at points a resentment that our very openness, our willingness to welcome difference, our pride in being home to many cultures is being used against us. He went on to try to define the duty to integrate. Our tolerance is part of what makes Britain, Britain. So conform to it, or don't come here. We don't want the hate mongers. If you come here lawfully, we welcome you. If you are permitted to stay here permanently, you become an equal member of our community and become one of us though Blair chose security as his ground. For others, it was about more than the struggle against terrorism. Britain's strong economic growth, despite a weak manufacturing base, was partly the product of a long tradition of hospitality. The question was now whether the country was becoming so crowded, England had the highest population density of any major country in the Western world, that this tolerance was eroding. It would require wisdom from politicians and efficiency from Whitehall to keep things on an even keel. Just the same is true of that larger threat, climate change. This threatened reshaping was physical, not demographic, the waves of water, not of people. It promised to alter the familiar splatter of Britain as she has seen from space or on any map. Nothing is more fundamental to a country's sense of itself than its shape, particularly when the country is an island. Rising sea levels could make Britain look different on every side. They could eat into the smooth billow of East Anglia, centuries after the wetlands were reclaimed with Dutch drainage, and submerge the concrete-crusted terraced marshland of London, and drown idyllic Scottish islands, and force the abandonment of coastal towns which had grown in Georgian and Victorian times. Wildlife would die out and be replaced by new species. There were already unfamiliar fish offshore and new birds and insects in British gardens. All this was beyond the power of Britain alone to deflect, since she was responsible for just 2% of global emissions. Even if the British could be persuaded to give up their larger cars, their foreign holidays and their gadgets, would it really make a difference? Without a frank, unheated conversation between the rest of us and elected politicians, who are then sent out into the world to do the bigger deals that must be done, what hope for action on climate change? It seems certain to involve the loss of new liberties, such as cheap, easy travel. It will change the countryside as grim-looking wind farms appear. It will change how we light and heat our homes and how we are taxed. All these changes are intensely political, in a way the British of the 40s would have recognised. Politics is coming back as a big force in our lives, like it or not. It will require more frankness, less spin, and a more grown-up interest in policy, not scandal. Without this frankness, without trust on each side, what hope for a sensible settlement between Muslim and Christian, incomer and old-timer? Without a rebuilding of strong local structures, what hope for better-run schools, councils or hospitals? Without level-headed politics, how will the future shape of the UK, if it continues, be negotiated? In the course of this history, most political leaders have arrived eager and optimistic found themselves in trouble of one kind or another, and left disappointed. Such is the nature of political life. Indeed, perhaps it is the nature of life. But the rest of us need those optimistic politicians, the next leaders, the ones whom we'll laugh at and abuse. And we need them more than ever now. The threats facing the British are large ones. But in the years since 1945, having escaped nuclear devastation, tyranny, and economic collapse, we British – have no reason to despair or emigrate. In global terms, to be born British remains a wonderful stroke of luck. A History of Modern Britain by Andrew Marr was read by Toby Longworth and is published by BBC Audiobooks.